0: Good morning, I'm Brenda Tennell and I've been asked to share my faith story with you this morning. If this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is for she is a sinner. This statement comes from Luke chapter 7, the story of the sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet with her tears. It was on Father's Day 1992 that my twin sister, Led me to Jesus. She showed me in John chapter 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It was on this day that God became my heavenly father, my Abba, my daddy. One week later, I walked into the doors of Windsor Road. I started reading the Bible. And attending classes, God's word began to reveal to me the depth and depravity of my sin. I read about Isaiah and his response when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He said, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. That was me, a sinner. God began to wash me with the water of the word and he began healing my heart. He began to do in me what I had tried to accomplish my whole life and failed miserably at. He set me free. He gave me peace, courage, and hope. He showed me what biblical love is like. Jesus rescued me from drugs, immoral behavior, suicide attempts, despair, bitterness, resentment, selfishness and fear, and hell itself, victimization, guilt and shame, condemnation, hatred, unforgiveness, pride, loneliness, the list goes on. One day, I would read about a woman not so different from me. She had the courage to enter into a room full of men and walk up to Jesus and worship at his feet. At first I thought, how in the world could she do that? Doesn't she know she'll embarrass herself? She, didn't, she shouldn't do that in front of others. What will they think? But one day I began to see it differently. I wish I had the courage to worship Jesus like that. What would it be like to pour out my grateful heart to Jesus in such an extravagant way and not be concerned with what others thought? But I'm a sinner. Does he know what sort of woman I am? In Christ, I learned that my sins are no longer always before me. He has taken them all away, past, present, and future, and nailed them to the cross. My sins have been tossed into the sea. They have been removed as far as the east is from the west. I'm not that sinful, immoral woman anymore. He does know what sort of woman I am. Forgiven. Clean. Born again. My Jesus always has time for me. He never rejects me. He always loves me. I can talk to him anytime I want to. He even loves to hear me sing. He has given me peace that passes all understanding. He has given me a future and a hope. When I sin or wander away, I have the right of return. He's always approachable. I need not fear him. I imagine the Pharisees in this story looked at the sinful woman and thought, How dare she love him so? And I think, how could she not? How can I not love him so? I know where I have come from. I prostituted myself to the things of this world. I sold myself for momentary pleasures. I rejected him. I played the harlot. I know where I was when he rescued me. I have been forgiven so much, how can I not love him in return? Jesus said, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. My faith in Jesus has saved me. This is my story.
1: Well, thank you so much again, Brenda. And um, just a couple of footnotes to her faith story. And the first is, um, it deals with the power of a personal invitation. Um, so I asked Brenda a couple of days ago when uh, we were going over her faith story, when she mentioned coming to Windsor Road, I said, How did you first make your way to Windsor Road? And she said, Because someone invited me to the services. I'm telling you, we are continuing to reap the blessings of that personal invitation that happened over 20 years ago. So if you ever wonder about the power of a personal invitation, here we have just uh, tasted some fruit of that too. So I want to make sure to mention that. And um, and the, I guess the second footnote I want to mention is that... Um, You know, if you're new here at Windsor Road, if this is your first Sunday here in our services, you you need to know this. We are a church of broken people. And all of us have stories of God's mercy and goodness to us. And uh, we are a congregation of uh, broken lives who uh, have been and are being healed uh, by Jesus. And, And you need to know that. And, 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 uh, uh, every Friday night, uh, you meet broken lives here at the church through the ministry of Celebrate Recovery. Uh, celebrate Recovery is a ministry uh, of healing for life's hurts and habits and hang-ups. And uh, we heard uh, a story of healing last Friday night, and um, this coming Friday night, we'll celebrate the fourth anniversary of uh, this wonderful ministry that's changing lives. And so um, there's uh, uh, going to be a special showing of the film Home Run, which was in theaters last year about this time. And uh, it's uh, about recovery, and it features the ministry of Celebrate Recovery. And um, and it's a wonderful film for many reasons, not the least of which it was filmed in my hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So there. Um, but uh, anyway... Um, we're a congregation of uh, lives that have been healed by Christ. So this is who we are. Amen? Uh, We're in a series on the parables, parables of grace. And this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, an account of how Jesus came into the lives of a couple of broken people. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book in the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. You'll find that on page 864, 864 of your church Bibles, if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please feel free to take uh, the copy that's in the pouch in front of you, put your name in it, and uh, take it home as your copy uh, from uh, this church family. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Follow along with me as I read aloud. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Well, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Well, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. Francis Edward Sue is a professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College in California. And um, some time ago, he was awarded um, and recognized for excellence in education and in teaching in his classroom skill. And as a part of that award, he uh, was allowed to give a lecture to hundreds of his colleagues um, about the one lesson that has impacted him most when it comes uh, to uh, education and teaching and uh, mathematics. So Professor Francis, as he's called, thought about what he would say and He decided to share the one lesson that's really gone beyond just classroom skill. It's a lesson that has affected his relationship with his students. It's a lesson that's impacted how he relates to his colleagues. It's a lesson that has uh, affected his family life. It's a lesson that has touched every fiber of his being. And it is a lesson about grace. In fact, that's the name of the lecture. The, the lecture is about the, the lesson of grace in teaching. And so, according to Pro- Professor Francis, uh, grace insists, strongly asserts that my accomplishments do not define me, my accomplishments do not constitute my identity. My victories, my achievements, my degrees, having tenure, those things do not define who I am, grace says. Grace, rather, is this undeserved good freely given by someone who is very good. I love that definition. Undeserved good freely given by someone who is very good. Good. And he tells uh, about a time in his life uh, when he was in graduate school and he almost quit the discipline of mathematics and almost gave up on his pursuit of being a mathematician. Um, He was struggling with his uh, project, and at one point, his advisor, kind of the gatekeeper to his PhD, finally sat him down and looked him straight in the eye and said, bluntly, I don't think. You have what it takes to be a mathematician. Professor Francis said that's probably the lowest that I ever felt. Uh, I, I just didn't I didn't know what to do. I mean I he had to really think about what that advisor advised, I had to really consider that advice. And he said i don't I I love mathematics. I love teaching. I love sharing thoughts. And it's, it's exciting to me. I think about it. And I, I want to pursue this. And But if I pursue it, it's not going to be for the accolades. It's not going to be for the reward. It's not going to be for the tenure. It's just going to have to be for sheer love of mathematics. And so once he kind of, you know, had that you know, dark night of the soul experience, and he came through saying, no, this is This is what I truly love. He said that he did what he would recommend any student do who experienced what he experienced. Get a new advisor. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened. He did. And uh, he was able to find an advisor, actually, who had uh, taught him in undergraduate school. And and of course, this meant that uh, he was going to have to uh, start all over in terms of his topic and just kind of go from scratch. But he really liked this particular professor, and here's why. He remembered that when he was an undergraduate student, uh, he had gone to this professor uh, seeking an extension on a project, uh, and the professor asked him why, and he said, the reason why is because my mother has died. And I'd like an extension on my project. And this is what the professor said. He said, so you want an extension because your mother has died. He said, yes. He says, well, he says, you must be going through a very difficult and hard season in your life. Let's get together for coffee. And Professor Francis said, that was an act of grace that totally transformed him. Grace, uh, my accomplishments are not my identity. My grades are not my identity. Getting into this particular school, not my identity. Having tenure, not my identity. Grace, rather, is this undeserved good, freely given, by someone who is very, very good. Wow. Lesson of grace in teaching. Do you hear echoes of that in these verses that we shared this morning? The power of grace to transform lives as Jesus met two people, both of whom had been defined by their accomplishments. And we meet both of them, don't we? Meet, we meet one of them uh, whose name was Simon, Simon the Pharisee. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, three times in the first two verses of our text, we learn that Jesus met with a Pharisee. You see that? One of the Pharisees. He went into the Pharisee's house. And, Jesus was reclining at the table of the Pharisees' house. Very specific. Simon the Pharisee. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees, well, the name itself means the separate ones. And by Jesus' day, uh, they had been around, oh, well over 150 years. They were sort of an association or a sect or a group. of. uh, Originally, they were kind of a back to the Hebrew Bible movement. They were... uh, Very concerned uh, that God's people be orthodox in terms of keeping God's word, which is a good thing. But by Jesus' day, this emphasis had sort of morphed into an attitude, an air, a sense of pride. Because these Pharisees, why to know god 's Word you would have to be able to read god 's Word, they were literate, and so they were of a higher social economic situation, and they tended to look down, they would be like the uh, professor said you 're not fit to be a mathematician you 're not fit to be one of god 's people that kind of a thing and uh, Jesus had a very stressful relationship with the Pharisees and Yet one of them invited Jesus to his home. You See that? And here's what I love about the Lord. He accepted the invitation. Uh, we talk about wanting to be more and more like Christ. Here is something that you need to know about Christ. Jesus was very comfortable meeting all kinds of people in all kinds of backgrounds. And here Jesus, he was very comfortable coming into uh, the Pharisees' house, meeting with the Pharisees' friends, and dining at the Pharisees' table. Jesus would be very com Jesus would find himself, it would be very easy for him to have a meal in the in the dining hall of the Champagne Country Club. Very easy for him to do that. And it would be very easy for Jesus to have lunch uh, in the workroom at ADM. He would be, be very comfortable. He'd be very comfortable uh, dining among the, the 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 senior academic leaders at the university, and he would be very, very comfortable um, uh, uh, distributing food and helping uh, the under-resourced, that salt and light. He could meet with broad ranges of people. That's exactly how he was. And so he accepts this invitation to meet with uh, Simon, Simon the Pharisee. Now, our meals that we have... Or a guest over at my house you come in I'm going to close the door it's going to be somewhat personal on a private affair that's not exactly how it was back then in the first century we Americans are very guarded about our privacy and our personal lives but uh, things were a lot more open back then Um, I found this picture and uh, this would have been in the era of the Roman Empire this would be like a dining room table and notice first of all it's outside so So Simon's home could very well have had a courtyard and you've got fountains and yes, that's a table there in the middle and and you notice what's not there, chairs. So this idea of having a chair and scooting up with your feet underneath the table, that's very foreign to Jesus' world. What you'd have there is, uh, well, what... Technically, that's called there on the left is a triclinium, tri-three, clinium, like recliner to uh, uh, almost like a, a mattress or a couch, a three-man couch. So people would actually eat their meals propped up on uh, their left elbow, and they'd be reaching their right hand over at the table, and they would be eating and drinking, and that's what's going on there. This very, And so because it was more open, uh, you would have passers-by or strangers or gawkers kind of walking walking by and seeing this fantastic banquet that's taking place here as Jesus has been invited to Simon's house. My goodness. And, and, um, and then all of a sudden, she shows up. Verse 37, Luke begins by saying, Behold, look, there she is, a woman of the city. What does that mean? Well, you can only imagine a woman of the city Luke says she was a sinner. What kind of sinner? You can only imagine. She was probably an adulteress, probably a prostitute. Why is she there? Why would someone like her go to a place like Simon, the Pharisees, the separate one? My goodness. Well, it's because Jesus was there. That's why. And she wanted to bring him something. Uh, 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 but when she gets there, it's almost like this explosion of emotion takes place. Where here she's you know standing behind him. You remember that picture there? His feet are not going to be under the table. They're going to be back behind him, standing behind him. There, she just this volcanic explosion of emotion happens, and and she starts bawling and 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 a, kind of watering the feet of Christ. With, at which point, you know, she doesn't have a towel to to wipe the her tears off, so she lets her hair down. Oh my goodness, she's around a table of Orthodox Pharisees and she lets her hair down and she starts dabbing the tears off of his feet and, and, then, she, and then she just breaks the alabaster jar, the flask of ointment and begins to anoint his feet. Normally it would be his head, but she's, that's as close as she can. So she starts anointing his feet and kissing his feet. And, and, and um, I could be wrong. But I don't believe that Jesus was distracted at all by the commotion that was going on. I really don't. Why? Because he's the king. And in another realm for all eternity, he was attended to by the angelic beings And so here, this dear soul is attending to him. So Jesus is propped up, and he's leaning, and he's eating, and he's having a conversation. He's not distracted at all by this explosion of emotion that's going on. Simon, on the other hand, awkward, Total awkwardness. His, the needle on his cringe meter is about to break the glass. You know, oversharing. Oh, my. Oh, what's she doing? What's she doing? I don't mind her gawking from the other side of the street. But what's going on here? Ah. Huh? Verse 38, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet, anointed them with ointment. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and this is interesting, when he saw this, he wasn't thinking about her. Why? Because he had already judged her. He had already made a determination about who she was and what she was about. He saw this and his thoughts went to christ well my mind's made up about who he is huh. i've invited him over to figure out what kind of a person he is now i know i know i know this much he's not a pro he may be a good talker but he's not a prophet because if he were a prophet he would know what kind of woman this is who is who's is doing what she's doing and he wouldn't have anything to do with her that's what we learn here in verse 39 Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. That's Simon. Harumphing in his heart about her. My goodness. Now, he's made two assumptions, you know. He's made two assumptions here in verse 39. Assumption number 1, he assumes that true prophets will not allow themselves to be touched by sinners. He assumes that true prophets will not allow themselves to be polluted by dirty adulterous women. He makes that assumption. Right? I wonder. I wonder if Simon the Pharisee ever actually read the book of Hosea who was a prophet, whom God told to marry an adulteress. Ah, well, we don't have time to get into that, do we? That's assumption number one. Assumption number two is this. Simon assumes that true prophets are clairvoyant. See, if, if, if he knew what kind of person, if he could really read her, then he would, he would know who she w- is and wouldn't let her touch him, you know, back up to assumption number one. He's made those two assumptions. (laughs) You know what the ironic thing about this whole thing is? So, the irony is that while Simon has judged Christ not to be a prophet, because if he were a prophet, he'd be able to read this woman and tell that she was a sinner and then not let her touch him. In fact, Christ does read Simon's heart. Thus showing that he is clairvoyant. (laughs) Did I say that right? I worked on it. You understand? you see what I'm saying? Oh, Jesus Jesus is reading the situation very clearly. Simon thinks he ought to be reading her. But Simon's left himself open. And Jesus hears the conversation that Simon had with himself. And that's why Jesus says, Uh, excuse me, Simon, may I have a word with you? Verse 40. Simon, I have something to say to you. Now listen, by the way, when Jesus says, I have something to say to you, that means he's going to throw a grenade in your tank. (gasps) Okay? So get ready. Oh yeah, say it. Go ahead, teacher. And Jesus tells this little two-verse parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. Debt was a terrible thing in the first century. I mean, a terrible thing. Not the kind of regulations we have in our country. I mean, you you can't pay your debt. You go to debtor's prison. And then how are you going to pay your debt there? See, very difficult situation. One owed 500 denarii. What is that? A denarii is plural of denarius. And remember the parable last week of the workers in the vineyard? A denarius was a unit of money that was typically... The wages paid for one day's labor. So here, one of these owes about two years' worth of wages. The other owes about two months' worth of wages. Both are in debt. Both cannot pay the debt. Both are in trouble. And what happens? The moneylender decides he doesn't care about money. And he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answers, he's really cautious. That's why he says, "Well, oh, I suppose he's, got he's afraid he's going to be cornered here. Well, he better be. I suppose, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you're right on. You're right on. You've judged rightly. I agree with you. And that's when Jesus turned toward the woman. Now he turns toward the woman, you see. He's not been distracted any of this time. Now he turns toward her, but he speaks to Simon. And what does he say? What's, What's the very first word out of Jesus' mouth? Look. Look at her, man. You haven't even seen her. Luke tells us earlier to see her, right? But Simon, Jesus says, look, see her. Don't you see her? I come to your house as the honored guest. And we know that Jesus was invited as the honored guest. That's why, that's the importance of this phrase, and he took his place at the table. That means he's the honored guest. He's called teacher a sign of respect. You've invited me to your place. You didn't wash my feet. That would be just typical and customary uh, in the first century to come to someone's home in the first century after walking in the dirty, dusty streets uh, uh, and my feet are aching from the trip. The first thing that would happen would be here, uh, wash your feet, refresh your feet, and, and then there would be the customary greeting, you know, uh, of, of guests there in the home and the, and the mwah mwah on both sides of the cheek, and then and then the us well, Americans we don't, you know, but we're Americans. That's what they did. It's what many cultures still do. Our friends in Turkey. How they greet us. And then this ointment, this uh, would be anointed to just refresh our faces. And still in, in Turkey, we experience that. Splashing some things on our face. And, and it just give us a little bit of refreshment here. And and you know, we have our own customs. If you get invited to my home or I get invited to your home. What happens, right? I knock on the door. What happens first? You open the door. It's very important to treat a guest. First, open the door. And come in. Welcome. We're glad you're here. May I take your coat? Uh, would you like something to drink? Would you like some coffee, tea? Can I get you so, a cookie or a goodie? What would you like? And, or come to the living room and sit down. Or come around the peninsula at the kitchen. All these little things—we just—they're just unconscious. This is how we treat guests, and you might overlook one or two, and and and. But you know, Simon was o for three, and Jesus was the, the honored guest. What's going on there? And Jesus says, "Simon, this this woman, she she's come and She's." She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And then, and then you've, you've given me no kiss. She's stopped, stopped kissing my feet. My feet. Wow, that's an expression of love. And my goodness. And Jesus is not saying, Simon, she, she did more than what you did. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, she did more than what you didn't do. She's been a better hostess, and it's not her house. What's up with that? Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And that's when he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And now the rest of the Pharisees are humping. Who is this? Who is this that even forgives sins? And we don't know what's going to happen next, do we? We don't know what's going to happen. It just the scene just kind of abruptly ends. What's Simon going to do? How's he going to respond? Where's this going? What is this about? Friends, this is about grace. This is about the fact that your accomplishments do not define you. This is about undeserved good, freely given by someone who is very good. Very. And in this cast of characters here, this, this, these verses are all about the issue of identity. I, who am I? Who is, who is this woman? Who is Jesus? Who is Simon? Who are these people? Well, let's start with Simon. Who is he? I'll tell you who he is. He's someone who likes his accomplishments. I like my credentials. I like my status. I like my level and rank. Simon is a lot like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He likes, he's he is satisfied with his self-righteousness. He's a lot like those who went to work in the vineyard early. And he loves the law. He loves knowing where he stands. And, he, he likes knowing what's coming to him. And, and so for Simon, the, opposite of, a, the, the op- opposite of a sinful life is a virtuous life. The opposite of her is him. So why, what business does she have at his table? He likes the kind of life where you keep all the rules and act respectably and pay all your bills on time, and it's a tight, proper, starched life. It's about accomplishment that defines him, you see. And that's a, there's a problem with that, though. The problem is that, you know, you, you have that kind of view about yourself. You're, it's going to affect how you see other people. Well, he, he couldn't see other people. He couldn't see her. He wasn't looking. He was so absorbed with what he was going to do. Uh, Henri Nouwen, uh, a Christian author and a, a priest uh, in his vocation, has a great question, and it's for the Simons in this room. Who am I when nobody pays attention, says thanks, or recognizes my work? And the answer, the answer shaped by our culture is, you're a nobody. That's who you are. You're a nobody. If you're not someone who stands out, you're a nobody. And and nobody wants to be no, nobody wants to be ordinary. All of us want to be extraordinary, and as a result, we get driven by what Nouwen calls this shame-based fear of being ordinary. Shame-based fear of being ordinary. Why would people be afraid of that? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of death. We have an anxiety about death. We want our lives to matter. We want to be noteworthy. We want to be significant in the face of death. We don't want to fade away. We want to leave a dent in the universe. And so we tend to grasp at anything that makes us stand out and leave our mark, which leads to this neurotic Social comparison game, the comparison trap that appears online and in our social relationships and at work, this shame-based fear of being ordinary, it comes from this jealousy or envy of comparing ourselves with other people, fused together with this inferiority and inadequacy. But here's the problem, though. Here's the everywhere we see Jesus we hear him saying you've got to take the last place you need to be the last the littlest and the least you've got to be a servant But that's practically impossible if our egos are being driven by neurotic and shame-based anxiety because the reality of Good Friday is this, is that if you become like Jesus, if you carry his cross, nobody's going to notice. Nobody. Nobody in this world, that is. You see, that's the point of crucifixion. And yet Jesus calls us to crucify our ego, crucify ourself, crucify our aspirations to be somebody. Simon needs needs a good dose of crucifixion because it's affecting how he sees himself. It's affecting how he sees others. He keeps the commandments and it makes him proud. He fails to keep the commandments and he's filled with guilt. Surely there's a better way. Yes, it's called grace. Will he get it? Will we? Hmm. Well, that's Simon. Let's talk about Jesus for a moment. Jesus, who is called teacher in these verses. Jesus, who responds as a prophet in his ability to read Simon. But he's more than that, isn't he? He's God himself. Who else can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus just pronounces it. He doesn't stutter when he says, he doesn't say, your sins are forgiven, I think. He doesn't do
0: that. He
1: declares her sins forgiven. In fact, he identifies himself as the money lender in the parable. Only God is like that. Simon thinks that this meal is about two teachers and a sinner. He sees Jesus as a junior you know, Pharisee in the making. He sees him as an associate professor. Simon's a full professor. Two teachers and a sinner. Uh-uh, Jesus says. This is not about two teachers and a sinner. This is about two sinners and the teacher. And Simon, I'm the teacher. I'm God. The gospel is the banker who instead of foreclosing on my mortgage, he rather gets out his checkbook and he pays the whole debt. That's grace. That's grace. And so this is the gospel. The gospel says that my, my accomplishments are not my identity, my identity comes from his accomplishments. My worth as a person comes from Christ and no one else. And, and so this table is now this table of fellowship and love. It is a table for both this woman of the city and this Pharisee. It is, this table is for both the woman who must repent of her unrighteousness, and this table is for Simon who needs to repent of his righteousness. He needs to repent of his righteousness. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus. That's who he is. And finally, we get to this dear woman, this woman who came, this woman who came because she turned from her past, She received forgiveness from Christ himself because of his accomplishments. And what we learn when we look deeply at this story is that, in fact, no one owes God merely 50 denarii. All of us are in hawk 500. We are. And you know what the irony is of this? This dear, forgiven woman turns out to be declared more holy and more pure than a table full of preachers because she was the one who trusted Christ. We're we're not sure what Simon's going to do, but we know what this woman did. And so no wonder she responded so extravagantly. She understood what it meant to receive grace. She understood that. And so there wasn't anything reserved about what she did. She cared only about Jesus. She didn't care what anybody else thought. So what, what gift would move you so much that you would weep and bawl and break every social convention without flinching? All because you were so happy and so joyful and so at peace. What gift would that be? Would you agree with me if I said that gra- gratitude is a sign of a metric, a product of grace. Well, we mistake grace when we merely assume that it's something that makes us feel warm and fuzzy. Gr- grace is not, well, God makes me feel good and now I can do what I want. No, grace properly understood changes us and it changes how we live and think and relate. Grace enables us to sacrifice. Grace enables us to come to the table to the moneylender who doesn't care about money. He cares about grace. He cares about giving what we don't deserve. And then he turns her into a teacher and a missionary. Go in peace. Go, he says. Why? Because he wants her to go and have a ministry now. Where is she going to go? She's going to need a church, right? She's going to need a spiritual community. A place that will love her and encourage her and sharpen her and a place to whom where she can Sharpen and encourage and contribute. She's going to need a good church. Where will she go? May I give her the name of ours? Oh, God. Your grace defines us, not our accomplishments, Christ's accomplishments.